please keep that open and uh, we'll pray. Loving Father, uh, please um, speak to us now and we pray that you'd work through our weakness to change us such that we can bring glory to you and uh, live in relationship with you. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, I grew up in a place called Epping, which is a suburb of Sydney, and uh, haven't been back there for several years. My par parents moved out of there five or six years ago, um, but I'd, I was driving home and I decided to drive through Epping just, just to see what was going on there um, recently, and found that there are now skyscrapers lining the street that I used to walk to the station to get to school along. Um, and uh, the milk bar where I used to spend my pocket money after school on bubble bills and lollies is gone and uh, the sports store that I used to buy my cricket gear at and bought my first bike there, it's gone as well. Uh, and so places change, it's a very different place. Sometimes I see pictures of Springwood like it used to be, like Macquarie Road, the main street, uh, and it's changed. Um, even when we moved here, it was 13, 14 years ago, um, there was really only maybe one place where you could get an espresso coffee in Springwood when we moved here. But now, of course, they're everywhere, and I, they open up a new one, and I think, well, there's too many now, but they, they still seem to thrive. Um, there was once a group called Save Our Springwood, which fought and repelled McDonald's from coming to Springwood. Can't remember how long ago it was. Uh, maybe before my time. Actually, I think Adam Condy still has a Save Our Springwood T-shirt. Uh, when he arrives again next year, you can ask him to wear it when he preaches, but um, <laughs> uh, they tried to stop Springwood for changing, and they did to some extent, but Springwood has still changed. And of course, people change as well. Um, we change physically, we change in lots of ways throughout life. If you meet someone you haven't met for 30 years, then they will be different. Uh, they'll look different, but probably inside they're a bit different as well. So things change, you can't sort of stop them from changing. We're looking at uh, the last page of the Old Testament today, uh, Malachi 3 and 4, which is read. And, of course, the Old Testament spans thousands of years, and it's mostly the, the story of a relationship between God and His covenant people, Israel. And there have been lots of ups and downs in this relationship, because Israel were human, and they were sinful, and they were fickle. And so it's very significant that after all the ups and downs of this story, of this relationship, on the last page of the Old Testament, God says to them, I, the Lord, do not change. And that doesn't mean he doesn't do anything or he, he's, um, he's not moving things along, because he is, he has a plan and things are moving along. But the fact that he doesn't change means that he is faithful and his character doesn't change and his promises don't change and his commitments don't change. Which means that when Israel have walked away from him, he's still been there when they've come back. Uh, he's always still there because he doesn't change. And if you're a Christian, especially if you've been one for a while, then you'll know that we are always going away from God and coming back again. On a daily basis, we go away from God and we come back again. We are very fickle, but we know that when we come back, because He is, he is still going to be there, because He is faithful. Imagine if God said to us, you know, um, I've changed my mind, I'm changing the deal, I'm not interested in you anymore. That would be very bad news. Um, Imagine if the prodigal son, um, you know, the prodigal son in, in the parable in Luke 15, he goes away from his father and then he comes back again. Uh, imagine if he came back again and he found that his father had sold up and moved to the Gold Coast and didn't want anything to do with anybody anymore. Uh, but that's not the story that Jesus told. The prodigal son comes back and he finds his father still there who hadn't changed. 
And so the Bible says, I, the Lord, do not change. And that is such good news for fickle people. And the question today is, how should we respond to the faithfulness of God? Uh, We find here on the last page of the Old Testament, after everything, God is still urging his people to come back to him. I haven't changed. You've come and gone. Come back again, he's saying. They'd been down in the exile. They'd come back. They were coming back up. But in Malachi, as we've heard, they were faltering. They were kind of, their hearts were compromised. And so the question again is, how should we respond to God's faithfulness? So on the last page of the Old Testament, there's a final plea. There's a final warning. There's a final instruction. And those are the things on the outline that you've been given. So firstly, the final plea is to stop robbing God because he longs to bless us. God's purpose all through the Bible has been to bless humanity, but people just keep refusing to trust him. And he chose Israel as his covenant people and he said, I will bless you, but they just kept refusing to trust him. And they failed to secure his blessing. They were too fickle. So here at the end of the Old Testament, he's still pleading with them. Uh, Verses 6 and 7, he says, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But then get this, you ask, how are we to return? They had no awareness of what was wrong. What's your problem, God? We're all right. It's a very dangerous way to be, to lack that sort of self-awareness before God. It's sort of like saying to God, what? What's your problem? Uh, Well, Malachi's already identified various issues uh, in the nation, um, as we've seen in the last two weeks, their corrupt worship, their unfaithfulness to one another. Here he puts his finger on another issue in their lives and in their hearts. Verse 8, Will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, God says. Tithes in the Old Testament law were that, uh, it literally means a tenth. Uh, Under the law, you were supposed to give a tenth of everything you produced back to God. So you took it to the temple and it would be used for the Levites and for the poor. And the offerings were the portions of their sacrifices when they went to the temple that went to the priests. And of course, it would have been easy to take a little bit less back to the temple. Still keep up appearances, but not take a tenth. uh, And sort of hold back and nobody would see. But of course, God saw. And so he says here, you robbed me. How? In your tithes and offerings. I can see what you're giving back, God says. And in verse 9, he says, actually, that's why the nation's under a curse. You're not keeping the law. Verse 10, God says, so start bringing your tithes back again. Test me in this, God says, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there'll be not enough room to store it. Uh, So he's not just demanding their money, he's asking for their trust, he's asking for their hearts. He's saying, come back to the law, come back to me, come back to the covenant. He says, test me in this. It's not just transactional, it's relational. He's saying, trust me and see what having a relationship with with me can do. And the effect of returning to God is more than just, hey, you'll become rich. In verse 12, a delightful land implies something much deeper and richer than just material wealth. So this is the old covenant promise and duty. It was a covenant relationship like a marriage to God. Being in meant obeying the law and you would be blessed. Being out meant ignoring the law and as he warned them, you'll be cursed. And not paying the tithe showed where their hearts were. They were out. They were out of relationship with God and that's why they were cursed. Now, um, 
I'm sure these verses have been misused by church leaders to tell people that if they just give some more money to the church, then God will bless them abundantly and make them rich. Uh, and people's eyes have lit up and they've kind of given more money to the church and expected a tenfold return from God or something. But the thing is uh, that a Christian should realise that actually God has already opened the floodgates of blessing to us in the spiritual blessings of Christ. Uh, we shouldn't be interested in such cheap things as money and houses and gold and bank accounts and shares and whatever else. The new covenant is not a matter of promise and duty, but a matter of fulfilment and then response to that fulfilment. Um, God has already opened the floodgates of blessing and we respond. Jesus has kept the obligations of the law. If you like, he's already paid our tithe for us and he's won the blessing. He's fulfilled the law. And that means that we are now free from the law. We are free from, you don't have to pay, we don't have to pay the tithe, we're not under law. And you think, ah, well, excellent, Jesus has paid it all, wonderful, I don't have to be too worried about what I do with my money. But does it mean that we don't have to give anything back to God? Actually, it means we owe everything to God and we should want to give everything back to God because we're responding to grace and kindness, we're not responding to legislation. Uh, Malachi identifies cheating on tithes and offerings as an indicator of where their hearts were and we're not under law but it is similar for us. It's very true that our financial giving, what we do with our money, uh, can be a good indicator of the state of our relationship with God. Your attitude to your money does reflect your attitude to God if you're a Christian. You might know that Jesus died for our sins but are you making a clear investment in the Kingdom of God? Does that show, if I read your bank, if, if someone were to read your bank statement, I don't want to read your bank statement, but if somebody were to read your bank statement, would your investment in the Kingdom of God be evident in what's there? Or are you hedging your bets and withholding your offerings? In fact, are you robbing God of what you actually owe Him as a Christian, if I can put it that way? This is not about amounts. Uh, Layla's, Layla's mini talk to encourage us to give was, was very helpful. Uh, the parable of the widow giving her small amount. It's not about amounts, it's, it's about what, each, what we each know in our heart is an appropriate response according to our means and our situation. And that means that every Christian, uh, as Layla urged us, no matter what your age is, should regularly sit down and think about what you're doing with your money and pray about what you should do with your money. If you're married, you should talk to your spouse about what together you're doing with your money. Uh, many of us are pretty affluent actually, we have a fair bit of disposable income and we can choose to do all kinds of stuff that we like and, and we, we can be very generous to ourselves, in fact we're encouraged to be ge very generous to ourselves, um, you know, I, I've got to be kind to myself, I'm going to give myself a little treat, I've, I'm owed that and in the process of that we can be very stingy towards God, it's easy to rob God in a sense. Uh, this is not transactional and the New Covenant doesn't depend on this in quite the same way as the Old Covenant did. However, we do also believe as Christians that if we give with a generous heart, we will be blessed through that. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 9, Paul talks about the cheerful giver, you know, God loves the cheerful giver. And he says, uh, now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. 
do, do you, you'll be enriched in every way, he says, if you can just open your heart to be generous. Uh, I wonder if we believe that. God wants to bless us. God doesn't promise to repay or multiply our money. That's not the promise. But God does promise to repay our faith now and in eternity. You put your trust in him, you reflect that in what you do with your money, then see what God does. He promises that you'll be blessed. And so here he says, return to me, put your faith in me, you'll see good things coming back. That's the final plea of the Old Testament, stop robbing God because he longs to bless. And isn't it interesting that that, that final plea, it's about money. It's uh, quite interesting, isn't it? Because I, I suppose maybe because there is no clearer evidence of where our heart no more objective evidence of where our heart is, perhaps, than uh, how it's reflected in our finances. Okay, we also have a final warning here to start fearing God because he has to judge. There are two kinds of people in the world. There are believers and there are unbelievers, but it's not always easy to tell the difference. Jesus described it as weeds among wheat or sheep and goats. It's all mixed together. But there is beginning to be a distinction now and there will be a final distinction in the end, uh, on Judgment Day. In Malachi's time, he was preaching God's word, he was confronting God's people, and there began to be a distinction now amongst the people, as in their response to God's word. And in verse 13, the unbelievers spoke up, they started emerging, uh, and the Lord says, You have spoken arrogantly against me. And you ask, What have we said against you? Again, they're going, What? Uh, verses 14 and 15, they were suggesting that maybe it's not worth worrying too much about God's requirements. Evildoers seem to get away with doing whatever they want. Uh, so these people seem to be giving up on trusting God. We may as well just ignore God's word and do whatever we like. It was the attitude. The same thing's happening in the church today, incidentally. Uh, there are certain sections where oh, there's, it, there's nothing to be gained by being too serious about God's word. They water it down and we should just do whatever we want. And as God says here, it's actually extreme arrogance to talk as if we know better than the Bible and then pretend that we've said nothing against God. If we fear God, then we'll tremble at his word and we'll take it seriously and we'll follow it. We won't question it or undermine it or water it down. But there were faithful people in Malachi's time. Some were very uncomfortable with uh, the ignoring of God's word and the unbelief. And so in verse 16 it says, then those who feared the Lord talked with each other. So there's the solidarity of the faithful needing to stand apart from the faithless majority. The believers came together and it says, the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honoured his name. So a record was kept in heaven about, of those who actually believed in God. Uh, God knows who are his. God can see the distinction between believers and unbelievers. Even though it's fuzzy to us, God can see it now and it's being written down on the scroll in heaven. He's keeping a record so that nobody who stands for God and remains faithful will be forgotten in the end. And of course, it matters a great deal to, uh, that you are numbered as one of the faithful and that your name is on that scroll of remembrance, which is very much like the Lamb's Book of Life in Revelation in the New Testament because in the end there will be a final permanent distinction between those who belong to God and those who don't on the last day of judgment and so that's where Malachi goes next in chapter 3 verse 17 on the day when I act says the Lord Almighty 
verse 18, you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. And in chapter 4, verse 1, surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. And uh, God goes on here to promise to destroy the unfaithful. Uh, It says they'll be burned up completely to become ashes trampled under the feet of God's people in verses 1 to 3. But God promises to bless the faithful. Verse 17, they'll be his treasured possession. I will spare them like a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. So notice there, it's not a matter of being a better person than those who are God's enemies. It's a matter of being spared and and enjoying God's compassion because you've trusted him and relied on him. It's a matter of mercy rather than merit. And uh, these people have trusted God and so for them, in verse 2, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays and they will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. It's a very vivid image, isn't it? Frolicking like a little calf that's just had had its breakfast or something. Um, I can't imagine doing that myself. I, I can imagine a couple of you doing that, maybe. But I guess the point is that when the sun of righteousness rises, you know, when God's righteousness rises on the day of judgment and, and shines on the world, um, God's enemies will shrivel in the light of God's righteousness, but God's people will go out and they will frolic in the light of God's righteousness. That'll be the final distinction. The sun of righteousness will rise. And what will God's righteousness mean to you? There will be a final distinction there, a huge distinction, two destinations, no middle ground. You're either frolicking like a well-fed calf or you're shriveling up and being burned, which is the image that's here. And something of that distinction can be, be seen now in people's reactions to the Word of God. How do they react? So the challenge here, I think, is to make it clear where you belong, to have a clear allegiance, not just in what you say, but how you live. And who your people are, that is, um, whether your solidarity is with those who fear the Lord or with those who reject the Lord and, and, and ignore His Word. Remember, Jesus said that on the last day, many will come to Him and they'll say, Lord, Lord... And they'll claim to, have, to know him and he'll say, I never knew you, away from me, you evildoers. So they will claim his name, but they never feared God enough to actually do his will. They didn't take him seriously. And make sure that that's not you. Make sure that you fear God now. Make sure that your allegiance is clear. Make sure that your name is on that scroll that you're not one who ignores God's word and who waters it down and who doesn't trust, but that you're somebody who takes it seriously. So the final warning of the Old Testament is to start fearing God because he has to judge one day. And lastly, there's a final instruction just in the last few verses, which is to keep returning to God because the end is coming. As the Old Testament closes, what are God's people urged to do? They are to look back in remembrance and they are to look forward in readiness. Look back in remembrance in the sense of God has given you the law. That is how you are to relate to God. So remember the law that is stick with the law. Go on with the system that God has given you. Now, of course, Christians now know that a better system is here, which fulfills the law. If you want to stay close to God now, what do you remember? You don't, have to, you don't remember the law. We're not under the law. You remember the gospel. You stay close to Jesus uh, that, that, is what we, that is how we go on. And then Malachi tells Israel what's coming next and he calls them to readiness. 
In verse 5, the prophet Elijah would come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Why Elijah? Uh, Well, maybe because he called back Israel back to the law when they had strayed and he confronted them and he kind of forced them to identify as either amongst the faithful or amongst the faithless. And in verse 6, this Elijah would force a choice. He would either turn the hearts of children and parents towards each other, that is, he would reform the nation in godly repentance, or he would herald the destruction of the nation. Again, a distinction. The New Testament makes it clear that John the Baptist is this Elijah figure, and Jesus was the one he heralded, and Jesus brought the day of the Lord in part in his first coming, and he will complete it at his second coming, which we are still waiting for. So we are called to much the same readiness, be ready for the end, keep returning to God because the end is coming, watch your heart because the end is coming, learn to love righteousness because the sun of righteousness is going to rise, don't rob God, not of money, not of glory, not of anything he deserves because the end is coming. Uh, The Old Testament ends in much the same way as it has gone, that is, Here at the end, again, we see a faithful God urging fickle people to return and be blessed. And the the implicit question, I think, at the end of the Old Testament seems to be, when and how is God going to find a covenant partner who is actually faithful? He's been wrestling with Israel all the way through the Old Testament, and here at the end, he's still wrestling with them and saying, come on, return to me. Where is he going to find someone who actually can keep his law and claim his blessings and respond properly to him? Because all through the Old Testament, there's been nobody. And in that way, of course, the Old Testament prepares us for Jesus, because God would send his only son to be that faithful saviour that Israel could never produce. The Lord doesn't change. He's always faithful to his commitments. And that's why, in the end, he sent Jesus to be both the saviour and the judge. That's why you know that in the end there will be a judgment day because the Lord doesn't change. So how should we respond to the faithfulness of God? We should respond to it by taking God seriously enough to trust Jesus. We should respond by returning to God every day as we follow Jesus, keep coming back to him and by trying to meet his faithfulness to us by being faithful to him, that is making a clear investment in his kingdom and giving a clear allegiance to him and uh, having a clear hope as we look ahead. So uh, I printed a prayer at the bottom of the uh, outline again and uh, you might like to pray it as your own prayer as I read it out here. Heavenly Father, thank you that you do not change. You are always faithful. I'm sorry that I am often fickle and cold towards you, often withholding what is yours in my greed. Thank you that Jesus is perfectly faithful to you and has won your blessing for me. I return to you now in light of the judgment to come. May I be found among those who fear, trust and serve you on that day. In Jesus' name, Amen.